Reed, have you heard of this term using crap tops? No. Okay, so apparently a crap top is an internet slang for a bad or poorly functioning laptop computer that is undesirable to use, but you use it for testing. Nice. People who do software development or application development to test your product or your website. Are they only equipped with like IE6? Is that what you tested on? Low RAM, low storage space. All of these things are characteristics of a crap top. I guess if you're wanting to uh, put in that little caution sign saying that your site's under construction, that little GIF or whatever, um, this is where you would test it. Well, good news for everybody that still uses Dreamweaver. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 290 of Touchpoint. Reed Smith, that's Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed, I'm just here fleshing out my memory on my computer because AltaVista is just not loading properly. AltaVista. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Episode 290, another week of Touchpoint. If this is your first time, welcome. If not, welcome back. Quick plug for the website is touchpoint.health. Chris and I like to you know, really spend our day job trying to figure out a lot of these topics, and this uh, kind of holds us accountable. So we get a chance to kind of dial in and see what's happening. I think we've got to go in for today. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. However, once you're there, of course, you can check out all the past episodes, but you'll notice something called the TPS Report. TPS Report is a weekly email. It comes out on Mondays with five articles to start your week. So we'd love it if you'd uh, sign up for that. Again, that's that's really all we ever use the email address for. Appreciate the support and uh, the opportunity to be able to bring you this content. So we'll pause for one second, let you go uh, maybe sign up if you haven't. And we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews. And 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. We're going to do our best today, Reed, not to lower the temperature in the room here and, and come off as being you know, a little sobering about what's going on. But Uh-oh. I think it's fair to say that the current state of hospitals and health systems around the country is, is pretty challenging right now. Would you agree? Yeah, it is. Yeah, certainly. There's a lot of reasons uh, for that. And we'll, we'll get into some of the things that, that we're seeing or has been reported. But I know for a lot of folks, certainly coming are we off of COVID? I, I don't, I, I'm not really sure. But anyway, I, you know, the contract labor piece has been a, been a big real, uh, issue for folks, but the industry did not have the best first uh, nor second quarter. No, and that's validated by a, a link that we're having in the show report. Kaufman Hall does, uh, I guess, a biannual report, which means it comes out twice a, a year instead of every other year. I'm always confused by the biannual yeah, can we, as an aside, can we all get on the same page about how we talk about this? When somebody says, like, hey, let's have a let's have a call bi-weekly. I'm like, are they talking about twice a week? Or are they talking about, like, twice a month? <laughs> well, 
Unfortunately, the definition for that means both. But nonetheless, uh, the biannual report from Kaufman Hall that came out in June of 2022, the National Hospital Flash Report, they call it, it provided some information around where we are in the state of the state. So just for people who are not aware, this National Hospital Flash Report uses both actual and budget data over the last three years, sampled for more than 900 hospitals on a recurring monthly basis. And this hospital sample size is representative of all hospitals in the U.S., both geographically and by bed size, from academic to small critical access places. So, And then, of course, they use some advanced statistical models to standardize the data. So for those of you who don't subscribe to this report, definitely check out the link in the show notes so you can get on their mailing list. But they had some really sobering findings this, uh, this last June. Well, I'll start with the one that I, I kind of already mentioned, which is the elevated labor costs. That's still a big challenge. So hospitals certainly are seeing higher labor costs uh, and fewer hours worked. A sign of inflation and an indicator that longstanding labor shortages are likely worsened by increased turnover. So, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about this as we've looked at ways to, to solve for this with virtual nursing and some of those types of things. But this is starting to normalize a little bit. I mean, you know, at one point, nursing uh, hourly was being paid more than the physician's. Not not to say, I'm not trying to make a case for who should make what, but it just was out of whack from what historical budgeting accounted for. And then add to that another finding that nearly halfway through 2022, in general, hospital margins are cumulatively negative. While some metrics have normalized, hospitals continue to perform below pre-pandemic levels, Reed. And unfortunately, that looks like the outlook is uncertain for the rest of the year. You know, if you look into your uh, magic eight ball, the outlook is uncertain. Well, another thing that they mentioned here, warmer temperatures. Man, I can attest for that. Um, warmer temperatures, you know, driving ER visits. <laughs> so I guess people are out and about in the summer months. People are often scheduling elective procedures, you know, which may also contribute to this. But they talk in here about the fact that emergency department visits spiked this past month as people spent more time outdoors. I don't know that's necessarily a bad thing necessarily, but it's just it's just kind of what what is going on right now. And then let's add to the fourth major finding that they had. And this is uh, this kind of culminates the results of this last flash report. There has been pent up demand for hospital services that's also contributed to an increase in patients. Sicker patients are continuing to schedule procedures they had previously postponed. And that indicates there's sort of a return to normalcy as people, you know, are trying to get back to healthcare. Combine all of this together, right? With we have we have uncertain margins, we have a labor pool that's kind of going through a lot of transitions. We have more and more volume coming in, Reed. The outlook doesn't look very positive for hospitals and health systems around the country right now. It's a tough place to be, you know, and, and you can only manage out of some of this, right? right. I mean, right. you can try to control supply cost and labor and this, that, and the other, but in, in a lot of cases, these are just not always things that you have complete impact on. And I think it's clear to say that we have to start doing things a little bit differently as organizations. We can't keep doing the same. And I know we keep saying that, and it's almost to the point where it becomes trite for us to say that, but that definitely is is a thing that we as professionals within the healthcare systems, we really have to figure out how we can change the way we are managing our work and what we are doing, how we're showing up every day. And that kind of leads to one of the first of uh, two articles we want to get into that kind of highlight how some healthcare professionals around the country are responding to these challenges that they're facing. So uh, this next article from Becker's, a very common uh, outlet that uh, I'm sure a lot of people check out and, and may have seen this. Under pressure, health system marking leaders on their greatest challenges. It talks with a couple of folks, and, and we'll kind of call out what they say. So first one, Paul Matson. Uh, many of y'all probably know Paul. Uh, he's mm -hmm. the chief marketing communication officer at the Cleveland Clinic and has been there for some time. And Chris, I want to say prior to that was maybe at Delta Airlines or something like that, but, it, but another kind of big consumer brand. So he's got some really interesting thoughts typically what he talked about was two different challenges. The first one being that expectations for brands and organizations are changing. So whether or not, you know, you're uh, for, for profit, not for profit, uh, or whatever your business model is, 
they're looked to for responses on complex issues. This is something that wasn't necessarily a focus for the chief marketing officer just a couple of years ago. I've read actually a couple of stories uh, kind of on this this front. It talks about obviously things that have been, you know, social justice and all the, you know, the abortion piece, gun violence, et cetera, that's been in the news. People want his take, you know, the organization certainly, but but it's something he's now having to address publicly, at least, that maybe he, he didn't have to historically. Yeah, marketing playing a role in these kinds of social discussions and marketing a health system is kind of leading that conversation and the way we present it to the community and also to our own employees, right, is very important for us. The second thing that he kind of doubles down on is the complexity of digital. He and I had a chance to chat at the last conference that we were at, and we're in a a digital work group, and we were talking about the, the complexity of technologies are continuing to change rapidly. And because of that, it really has focused the way marketing has invested their budgets, the way they're looking at showing up in the marketplace. And he is actually quoted as saying, it's critically important that everyone in marketing, particularly marketing leaders, have a deep understanding of the digital landscape and how best to leverage digital to help build brand and reputation, as well as attract patients. It's kind of an interesting take on that. There is another healthcare professional, Stephen Taliano, who's the Assistant Vice Chancellor of Strategic Communications at UC Davis Health. And he said that there are a lot of challenges facing, obviously, chief marketing offers today. And he kind of focuses in on what the consumer is saying. You heard about kind of what Paul was talking about, how, you know, we all need, you know, or that, that people are now wanting, you know, his opinion. But now, you know, what, what Stephen is saying is that for some the consumer distrust, deep-seated skepticism of claims made, that you know, heavily splintered audience attention span, increasing competition for the, the online even interest of an audience, increasing costs for ad placements, uh, etc. It's really like, you know, th- this is becoming a very complex space for, for people in his role and kind of in these leadership roles. Yeah, and doubling down on understanding that consumer and what the consumer's needs are and how to kind of navigate and find your place as a hospital or health system in your community. There is a place for us. But what is that place? I think that's shifting from, you know, traditionally being, you know, just the place where everyone would go when they need care. We know that that model has shifted a I think, too, the last healthcare marketing executive that we want to talk, that we want to get a quote from here is Skip Hidley. He's the chief communications and marketing officer at Ohio State University, Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. And he actually focuses on two key challenges. The first, creating inspiring recruitment marketing campaigns. Mm to help attract candidates, new recruits. There are, you know, as we talked about before, right, there is a lot of job openings out there. And we, what makes it worthwhile? Why would you want to work at a health system? And the second is engaging frontline clinical teams to continue to enhance patient experience at a time when everybody is struggling with fatigue and just generally, you know, being feeling overworked. How do you continue to have them focused on what's actually really meaningful, which is that patient experience? I mean, this is a complex world that we're in, right? Reed? Yeah, it really is. Uh, and I think the two that he calls out, you know, not that we haven't done recruitment marketing historically. Something we need to double down on. You know, we talked about the labor issues earlier, and then even the the experience piece of it. You know, we're not just an advertising department. So I, I think these are all really interesting call outs uh, of things that either are getting a renewed interest or heightened uh, interest, maybe. Uh, and then some things that you know, like uh, like Paul mentioned, that you know, historically we just haven't had to be a part of from a discussion standpoint. I tell you what, let's let's take a let's take a pause here, and then we'll come back uh, after the break, talk a little bit about some of these more staffing challenges and and how some folks are trying to solve for that in the uh, IT space. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Before the break, Reid, we were talking about, first of all, the kind of sobering state of the healthcare industry today and how healthcare marketing leaders are kind of looking at addressing some of those challenges. The people that we also interact with a lot in our roles are health system CIOs. And what they're facing tremendously here are staffing challenges. As you know, as we hire people that have transferable skills to other industries. IT people can work in any industry virtually. Uh, digital marketing people also yeah. have very transferable skills, right? And and so we're all faced with the fact of how do we keep our staff engaged and retained? So let's look at this article from uh, Becker's Hospital Review that's entitled How Health System CIOs Are Overcoming Some of Their IT Staffing Challenges. Again, somewhat like the last article we, we uh, mentioned from from Becker's, you know, they've got some call outs here as well from some of these leaders in the space. So Ed McAllister, Senior Vice President and CIO of, of uh, UPMC, which is uh, obviously a very well thought of uh, innovative shop, if you will. He talks about a couple of different things. One, at the entry level. Our efforts start with our IT rotational and IT summer associate programs, where we're lucky enough to have excellent schools in our own backyard to draw from. Maybe not everybody has this, but it's a good opportunity to say, okay, well, what, what's around us here? You know, we've seen some of this in the nursing space. Come hang out here, intern, you know, whatever you want to call it. Hopefully, they build some relationships and it becomes a place that they want to uh, uh, start their careers when they graduate, right? Super smart for, for us to do that. And if you're working, if you're fortunate enough to be in, 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 a, in a community where you have people that are learning to do IT in your local universities, this is a great opportunity for them. The other thing that Ed doubles down on is is something that you and I have talked about before, Reed, which is that sort of that heart and passion for working in healthcare. And he even indicates those who choose to work with us instead of like Google, Amazon, or other tech companies, they not only have great IT skills, but they have that sort of that higher calling to work for a mission-driven organization, right, around care, delivering care, et cetera. I've noticed that some of the top performing IT professionals that I've worked with, they really focus in on that. They're there because they want to make healthcare better for the patients, right? And so they really look at ways to do that. All of this together allows for them to build an environment where where people are really wanting to work for UPMC. And I think there's one other thing that he kind of addresses here too, which is something that has been sort of something top of mind to a lot of us, which is developing a career path, right? Giving them an ability to grow within their own roles and take on more responsibilities. And so looking at employee resource groups, technical workshops, other things like that are used to really empower and develop his own staff. Certainly, much like nursing, if you can retain what you have and develop from within, makes a ton of sense. And then giving uh, kind of a runway for those, uh, taking advantage of kind of what's local uh, is a is a great, great call out. So, Another uh, CIO, Mark Combs from, um, from Mon Health in West Virginia, he, he actually says, we're not doing anything that's really that innovative, but really focusing on making the most of remote work. So creating a remote work environment, he actually indicates that they have team members located across the country. So he's hiring people, not just yeah. in West Virginia, right? Opening the staff to full-time remote is tremendously beneficial for him because now he can attract people with different skill sets that really appreciate that flexibility. Yeah, and I think yeah, kind of doubling down on that, he talks about the fact that they've been able to cut down on almost all of the consultants that they used as a kind of staff augmentation play. And so a big cost savings. So I think, again, opening it up and saying, hey, I'm looking for the best candidate, not the best candidate that also lives within 20 miles of this <laughs> of this address uh, does give you some some real opportunity. So cost savings and, you know, potentially finding uh, the, the brightest out there. One last uh, highlight that we want to pull from this article is from Brian Shea, who's the CIO of MedOne Hospital Physicians. He has highlighted the fact that they're focused on recruiting the individual, not necessarily the role. Mm. Find someone who marks all the technical requirement checkboxes, but is also 
has the right individual characteristics. That includes like soft skills, communication, you know, effective communication. People that also you know have the ability to kind of be flexible because we're in an environment where we might have to pivot to focus on something completely different. You know, the whole other duties as assigned kind of line on every job description, having people that can be a little bit more nimble and flexible in the, in the organization is huge for him. It's maybe a little bit of a deficit in the first days and weeks, but over the long term, it, it, the benefits uh, are so much greater. And that's really what I've tried to instill and, and charge my hiring managers with as we built our team uh, at Arden is, yes, they need to practically be able to do the job. And that's what he's saying here. You know, they, they need to technically be able to do what you're asking them to do. But I'm much more concerned about the cultural piece and are they a fit for the team and you know, and that kind of thing, right? So when you're hiring a web developer, you know, you could probably go find the one that's, you know, the most advanced, right? With all this experience and ways to do things, but may just not be the right fit for the team. Exactly. It's just, a, I think, a better way long-term uh, to think about this. I think so, too. So, Reed, before we go to a really great interview I did with Alan Shoebridge, I'm excited to for to share this interview with the audience. I, I think that what's important here is we, we really are talking about embracing a change management environment in your organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last article actually outlines five organizational change management trends for 2022. I thought it might be interesting for us to kind of high-level touch on each one of these five areas that will help with not only IT and digital projects, but other organizational change management initiatives. Well, the first one they call it is agility. And, and people have heard this, I know, a number of times in a bunch of different contexts. But realistically, it's more than just about speed, right? I think people uh, associate this with speed a little bit. But they say in here that change agility is and will continue to be a key differentiator for organizations as they move through the digital transformation. So moving at a pace of a project, considering sponsors' engagement and, and the rigidity uh, of the organization being flexible with the timing of deliverables is imperative. So it's about the bottom line results um, of mm-hmm. the technology implementation is what they're talking about in this case. An organization that uses agile framework for project delivery, you know, they have to kind of align with the project cadence and ensure that the people readiness uh, is there for success. So, Not surprisingly, on, on top of that agility is um, having a good understanding or an analysis of what's going on in the current state environment. As the speed of change increases, assessing your organizational capabilities, the stakeholders, like all the dynamics involved with the stakeholders and the complexity of that change is going to help you to have a good understanding of how to contextualize whatever change management initiative you're trying to do so that it actually can resonate within the organization. That's the second piece, they say. Third, the tactical execution. It's where the rubber meets the road, as they say. Point is, is all the agility and planning and all that kind of stuff, you know, is is all fine and good. But if you can't put it into action, it's it's not really, I don't, I don't know what we're doing, right? So it's an effort that's about pushing and pulling certain levers to enable buy-in and support, addressing resistance where it lies, effectively communicating at the right level with the right messages. You know, all of those things, you know, um, are great. And then certainly, you know, having to be able to, you know, hold folks accountable to those plans to get the results. There's a lot to that execution step. Sure is. And then the fourth major trend that they highlight here is adoption. Obviously, Going live is a major milestone in a project lifecycle, and it should be celebrated. But um, you know what you need to do, though, it's not a barometer of how we measure project success. The measuring of success is really around how do people adopt to this environment. Adoption is a key post-live activity that requires measuring and should be considered part of the overall change solution. And so understanding those adoption issues and closing those gaps will lead to what this article kind of highlights as the major thing, which is benefits realization. You know, as we think about benefits, uh, you know, all this is great. uh, And then achieving the adoption of new technology is certainly the first step. But adoption of plan changes or successful changing the way that people think, act, live, you know, et cetera, is really what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, the, the realization of benefits. So every change tactic should have this as its primary purpose, they say, from targeted communications to leadership, uh, alignment sessions, uh, managing change resistance, 
you all should have one goal, which is obtaining those bottom line results for the organization. So without an approach, plan, metrics, et cetera, technology projects will struggle to reach their maximum value and desire transition for the, uh, for the future state. It's a great, great article. Go kind of dig in, think about this. I, change management, you know, even back to our earlier article that, uh, you know, we talked about, again, go back to what Paul said about, you know, he's being asked about things that he historically was not asked about. You know, there's a lot of change management in our world that maybe we didn't historically have. Well, and with that, I think it's a perfect setup for the interview I had with Alan Shoebridge. He's from Providence, and he and I had a chance to catch up. Uh, we saw each other just briefly at a conference recently, but we finally had a chance to catch up. And he shares some of the things that he's looking at and tracking at Providence to help brace his organization for change. So let's give a listen to that interview, and then we'll be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast, and today I am so delighted to have someone that I've known for many years in the industry, and surprisingly, this is the first time you're on the show. I suspect this won't be the last. That's my good friend, Alan Shoebridge. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you today. I am too, and we have a very important topic to kind of get into today. But before we go there, Alan, as I mentioned, you were well known in the industry, but there may be some people listening in that don't know a lot about you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your background and what you do today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Alan Shoebridge. I'm currently the Associate Vice President for National Communication at Providence. Um, we're a major health system on the West Coast. I've actually, this is my second term at Providence. I've been back for about a year. I worked there for 11 years previously. I've also worked at Kaiser Permanente, also Salinas Valley Memorial Healthcare System uh, in California. And I've been in the industry, healthcare industry and marketing, communication and Marcom roles for, gosh, I hate to say it, but almost 20 years now. Wow. And the industry has changed considerably over the last 20 years. I keep referring to that, but it really has. This industry has gone through a lot of changes. And we're in a particular important nexus point in the industry. And I'm wondering if this is a nexus point that's going to systematically change the way we do things. High level, where, where do you see the industry right now? Yeah, it's just an incredibly volatile time. And like I said, it, it's been 20 years in the industry and there's been ups and downs and there's been some really tough times. There's been some lean times. Um, there's been a lot of good times as well. But right now we've been stuck in, I think, you know, we're on this COVID roller coaster. And, you know, when, when COVID was first happening in 2020, I thought a lot about the fact that this is a huge disruption that the industry, you know, theoretically knew could happen. I mean, you always knew there could be a major pandemic and we had some brushes with that in the past, but really something that had shut down the entire economy that had changed the way, you know, healthcare and hospital systems work that that had never happened. And we just haven't gotten out of that loop. And, you know, there's been times where you see in a community or a state or part of the country where COVID recedes a little bit, things start getting a little bit back to normal. But then within a couple of months, we're stuck in the cycle of, you know, having staff shortages or not having enough people uh, able to come to the hospital uh, for their procedures. You know, so things that, are, that really, again, we think that there's going to be a recovery. Um, there's been some great progress, obviously, when the vaccine happened with therapeutics, that's been great. But really, for all of 2022, we thought 2022 was going to be kind of a bounce back year. You know, once we got over the first month or two where COVID was still, you know, really raging with Omicron. But we felt like, okay, you know, we're going to start recovering. But what happened really is, then it just started affecting staffing so much. So the staffing shortages, again, they've been bad for a long time. And, and COVID has hit it you know, harder than ever. And, and we just haven't been able to pull out of it. You know, one of the things I think is important when I talk to people that are not familiar with our industry, nonprofit healthcare industry, right, health systems, we notoriously operate at very, very slim margins to begin with. We're not an industry that per se is very flush with cash, right? Um, and again, I'm talking about nonprofits. That's something that is very difficult in, in normal states, in this kind of like flux, like you called it, like the COVID roller coaster, right? Over the last three years now, we're almost into the third year of this. That has a profound effect on just the financials of our industry, doesn't it? Absolutely. And yeah, those margins in the good years are probably looking at, you know, one to 6%, 5%, something like that. For many systems, it's probably two or 3%. 
for hospitals. And then now, you know, for the whole year of January 2022, starting in January 22 through the whole year, it's basically flipped. And the net negative, you know, operating margin is in the two to 5% range. So it's been really concerning. And again, there's just these factors of coming up, staffing, inflation, delayed care, all that. So things are improving a little bit. I mean, it's getting a little bit better month to month, but it's still negative. So I, you know, I just looked up some recent data for May and it's still negative across the board for most healthcare systems and hospitals in the country that are nonprofit. So again, that bounce back recovery we, we were hopeful was going to happen during the first of the year it just hasn't materialized. And so at the halfway point, we're struggling a lot uh, as an industry right now. Okay, so take that kind of uh, very volatile, well, I wouldn't say volatile, but the, the small margins and the kind of the, the balance of what we try to do as an industry. And now couple that with the fact that we have this staffing situation going on too. Every hospital, the one I work for and other people that I talk to at every health system, we are all struggling with kind of staffing issues. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, we can paint this as being burnout from COVID, but I think there's a lot of other factors involved here too. Yeah, absolutely. There's just so many things coming together. And when I've kind of talked about this uh, on social media, other places, you know, people fire back and say, oh, it's staffing has been a problem for a long time. And that's right. But, you know, the last two and a half years have just accelerated what were already problems. I think if you look at what you're hearing from a lot of people on the front lines, it might be that, especially with our nursing profession, everything, it was kind of an aging profession anyways, and we weren't replacing people fast enough. And that was before COVID. But now you have a lot of times where people say, well, you know, if I was going to retire in 2023 or 2024 or 2025, maybe I'll do it this year. And, you know, it's been stressful. It, I mean, you cannot underestimate or understate the stress that people have gone through, you know, just trying to deal with, especially in the first two years, the, the horror of seeing a lot of people get very sick and die. Colleagues get sick. You know, it, that was just, you can't underestimate that. And then you know, the sort of skepticism of medical care and vaccines and all that. So there's just been a lot of pressures, I think, on an industry and a profession that was already under a lot of stress, and that's accelerated it. And then, you know, I think, and I understand why people choose to do this, but also as sort of the virus was raging in different parts of the country, systems would have to bring in, hospitals would have to bring in a lot of traveling staff. They'd have to pay a lot of premiums to do that. You also have to pay premiums to your existing staff. You don't want to you know, marginalize them or, or get them in a bad position. So the costs have just sort of been soaring at the same time that people are accelerating their leave from the profession. And, and even I've like noticed and, and learned some things along the way. Like I didn't realize here where I'm based in Oregon, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about how long it takes to actually get a license. You know, once you've kind of completed your nursing schooling and then, you know, the practice sessions, everything you have to do, the actual time to just get your license certified by the state can take several months. Well, again, in the best of times, maybe that's an inconvenience, but, you know, during a pandemic and staffing shortages, taking, you know, months to get your licenses approved so you can go work full time in a hospital, that creates, you know, problems, that creates a backlog. Combine all that with the fact that we just don't have enough infrastructure to train all the nurses, all the doctors, all the professionals. And you combine that with just a lot of movement in the industry. So people are moving around a lot. You know, I've seen, you know, you remember all the stories about the great resignation and yeah, but actually I think it's sort of turned, it was like sort of a great reshuffling. It's not necessarily people are moving from completely out, but they might be moving somewhere else. And just, there's just that volatility. So when you have a lot of turnover, you know, you've got to pay more money to signing bonuses, all that stuff. So just that the kind of combination of all those factors have made staffing a super big challenge right now. Super big challenge. And it makes like, even in uh, where my health system is, there's other health systems that are also serving the same marketplace. And there's a lot of internal competition going on, trying to hire nurses from other places, et cetera. And I also think about sort of that impact of, you know, there are some places where you could actually go work for like a, a retail company and make more money. And, and there are people making some of those decisions to say, you know, I have the opportunity to kind of leave this very stressful, don't get me wrong, it's a it's a true meaningful type of work. But if I'm trying to make my bottom line, you know, for my, my own household, I can go work for a retail industry, I could go work for a traveling for-profit health services company, and then suddenly, you know, this is a better decision for me as an individual. That's really challenging for us 
particularly going back to our first point, right, around very narrow margins, how do we remain competitive in this space? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I think that the competition piece is, is big. Also, just a renewed labor push, I think, too, you know, organized labor. So as you've probably seen around the country, union activity has been very high. Union activity is always high in this industry. But what I think you saw is actual strikes happening where, you know, strikes in the past were, I think, more rare. And then even, you know, coming right up to the brink of strikes, you know, look at what happened with Kaiser. So, you know, that massive potential strike there. So you're right. Everything you said about more opportunities opening up, uh, more competition for labor, you know, increased union activity, all that stuff is just putting a lot of pressure on what was already something difficult. And, you know, retention and is a key for us. So now where I'm at Providence, you know, we're, we're really focused on retention, trying to do as much as we can. But again, there's a lot of market forces that make that more difficult than ever. And that relates to just staffing being an increasingly expensive piece of, you know, the puzzle. Okay. So we painted a, a picture of a very tenuous financial model of nonprofit health systems. We now have a staffing issue, but the other part of this is the other part of the equation is the actual consumers and patients in terms of the recovery. How are we seeing trends about patients coming back to care? And some people might not might not realize this, but there is some seasonality to this. We definitely see that you know as the summer happens, more people do kind of seek out care or you know unfortunately do silly things and get hurt and need to come to the emergency department and things like that. So I think with the summer you're seeing a little bit of improvement. Also, even though COVID is really widespread, the amount of real hospitalizations driven from it, everything is right now, at least I think a little more manageable. So I don't think we quite have the, you know, reluctance of people to come in for certain procedures or screenings. So that's improving a little bit. But the complication is the fact that since COVID is widespread, even though it might not, you know, land you in the hospital, if you get it, you're going to have to be off work for a while. And that's what we're facing with our nurses and other support staff. So, you know, you might have the doctors being able to perform a procedure. You might have the the surgeons ready, but maybe the anesthesiologist is out because of COVID or maybe the nurses are the scheduling people. So that's made it really incredibly complicated. So I think we're seeing progress. Like I said, the, 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 you know, finances are improving a little bit month to month, but it's not as fast as we need it to be. And so I think you are going to see a lot of Systems and hospitals have to do some cost-cutting measures, have to look at services that, you know, may need to be reimagined because it just hasn't improved quickly enough. And like you said earlier, the margins were razor thin already and you're, you're six, seven months into the year and it's not improving. Things are going to take kind of a, a more serious turn. There are a lot of factors here that are causing this this problem. But the one factor that we haven't talked about is also there's a lot of disruption happening. And we're, t- we're talking a week after the big announcement around Amazon and One Medical. I think that kind of burned up my Twitter and LinkedIn feed for all of last week. And the whole concept of disruption in our industry and where is disruption happening from? I'd love to get your thoughts on that as well, because I think that plays a role or a factor in this. Absolutely. And, you know, I always get a little frustrated when I, you know, read people or hear people talking about the industry and they say, well, healthcare doesn't want to change or they really need to embrace change or the leadership needs to think about change. And I struggle with that because it's true in some aspects, but, you know, I've, I've worked at three different organizations over the past, you know, five years and each one was really focused on evolving the industry becoming more consumer centric, all those things were at the forefront. Now, you can argue whether they're happening fast enough. Those are legitimate things. But then when COVID hit, it really became hard because if you look at the situation right now, we're looking at staffing shortages. We're looking at, you know, negative margins in our finances. We're looking at just trying to keep the doors open. You know, there's and one thing that I've learned a lot about, and I, like I said, I've been in the industry 20 years, but I didn't really think about this too much until this year, but it's like length of stay in our hospitals. You kind of want length of stay to be short so you can get people to the right setting of care, but also so you can get other people in. But right now you have people who come into the hospital and then there's nowhere to discharge them because, you know, the skilled nursing facilities don't have any room. They don't have enough staff. So we have people in our hospital that we should probably get out into better settings of care also allows us to free up for do other procedures, things like that. But we just can't do it because there's nowhere to send them. So when you have those factors happening, 
it becomes very difficult to say, well, we really should be, you know, thinking about driving innovation and everything. I'm fortunate that where I am at Providence, we have teams dedicated to this. And so they're still focused on that. And they're still driving through a lot of changes and enhancements. But if you're at a smaller system, you know, one or two hospitals, something like that, you know, it's going to be incredibly difficult if you're really focused on like, we just got to keep the doors open and we've got to just serve the community with the basic care. Um, so I think that that has stifled innovation in our industry a little bit over the last two and a half years. But it makes sense because we're dealing with something that shook the core, you know, like it shook us to the foundation. Like we just have to focus on getting through this. But at the same time, like you mentioned, you know, disruptors like Amazon, others, I mean, they're not waiting for us to do that. They're moving forward with their plans. And I do think that it's positive because having these forces who are thinking about the, the industry in a different way is always challenging us to make sure we're, we're doing that as well. But at right now is the most difficult time. And again, I think, a lot of momentum that many hospitals, healthcare systems had in 2019 has gotten stopped right now. You know, and if not stopped entirely, at least it's made it more challenging to progress with what everything you want to do. Well, I think part of that, and and this is really, I think that the way forward is we have to continue to be as adaptable and even even embrace change. And, and change management within our organizations, kind of like what we did at the onset of the pandemic, we all kind of leaned in because it was a common enemy, right? In this particular case, we were trying to solve the pandemic itself and better ways to provide care, the rush of telemedicine and all of these things. It's, it had a very singular focus. And then that focus allowed people to, to kind of fixate on it. Now, when we're stepping back and now we're, what, three years into the pandemic and we have all of these compounding factors now, it could get a little hard to start to address change within your organization. And I know you're going to be speaking about this at an upcoming conference. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see organizations should lead change. In some aspects, you have to really have a mindset. Like you said, I totally agree with that. And and again, I have not seen, I know there's probably people out there, but I have not seen like a CEO, chief executive type that isn't focused on that right now. Or not at least what doesn't have that in their mind of like we have to grow, we have to change, we have to become more consumer centric. Everyone I talk to, I see that. So I think there there may be some holdouts out there somewhere, but for the most part, that mindset is is right. I think where the you know next step is is how do you invest the resources to do that? So Providence multi-state system, we've got a team, it's really great, they're fantastic. Digital Innovation Group, you've probably heard of them. Mm-hmm. There's and there's others. There's others throughout the organization. So we're really lucky. So we have we have people that are dedicated and focused to that. I think where the rub is for smaller systems is you can't just put innovation or consumer focus on someone's existing plate. Say go run with it, make it happen. Right? You are going to have to make decisions about like what do we focus on, what kind of resources we put here, and make a concentrated effort to basically make that someone or some team or whatever a combination of that their job. I do think that's the hardest part for, again, some of the smaller systems or standalone hospitals. How do you evolve without making the resource dedicated? Because again, I just don't think you can put it, hey, 25% of the marketing person's job is now experience, right? And make it make it great. I just don't think that's, I don't think that's <laughs> the best recipe for success. I understand why it happens. But if you're really committed to it and the mindset is there, at some point, you've got to put the resources and people behind it to make it happen. I don't think you're advocating for like fundamental dramatic change within an organization. What we're talking about is there are things you could do at a very, even a micro level to focus in on improving this. Is it experience? Is it, you know, staffing and recruitment? Whatever it might be, whatever that challenge that you're facing, there are ways that you can kind of shift and direct your resources, your existing resources to address that, regardless of the size of your institution. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, I would say to get change done in a lot of places, you do need a mandate, right? So again, I think there's some value in potentially saying, carving out and saying, this person is leading our customer experience efforts. And here's the runway, you know, as the chief executive, or here's the runway I'm giving them to make it happen. Because, you know, what does occur in healthcare is we have a lot of process things. And some of them are really, they make sense. Some of them do not make sense. Some of them are, are snapping to government mandates or payer uh, mandates, whatever. I, I do think, like you said, there's things that can be driven and there's sort of small incremental change, but they're positive. But I think if you really want to be bold in, in making your organization more consumer centric, you have to give someone sort of a mandate and then you have to back them up to do it because there's a lot of like conversations and 
you know, a little bit of arm wrestling about process that is going to be hard to get done unless you have a real mandate to, to bring change. So again, I think you can do stuff. I agree with you. The best people in our industry are always advocating and doing things. But at a certain point, I think as a, as a small system, or again, you know, a couple of hospitals where you have to make the choice of like, we want to do this. We're giving someone a mandate and uh, we're going to help them clear the road to get things done. That, that does have to happen, I think, at some point. And I love that. I love that idea of developing some sort of mandate, some kind of purpose, right? It's It reminds me of, you know, I'm a big John Cotter change management kind of guy, you know, the eight steps of change. The first thing is identifying what we act, you know, the purpose or the mission of like, we need to change and getting people to understand that it has to be there. And that takes a lot of perseverance. And people like you and me, working within organizations, sometimes it feels like we're doing a lot of rattling the cages from the inside that could get a little bit tiring sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's, you know, again, there's walls that sometimes go up because this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we know we get paid for the procedure, whatever. And you come in there, you try to disrupt that. The instinct sometimes is to say, well, we can't because of, and and it, and, it, and a lot of times I understand people are coming from the right place, right? They want to make sure that, you know, the referrals happen correctly, the people get processed, the payments get made. So when you start, like you said, when you start rattling the cages or whatever, there's just a lot of friction that comes from, again, you might be dealing with someone who's run a, a part of the system for 20 years and this is how it works. And it does work well. But when you come in and say, hey, let's this works fine, but let's make it even better. Again, change is hard. And even with people, I think, have the right instincts and motivations, they want to do what's best for patients and consumers, getting them to change processes takes a lot of work. And again, rooted back into the fact that we do need a change. Look at all of these compounding factors. I would be surprised if there's any hospital executive across the country today saying things work just fine here. (laughs) Everybody has to change, right? (laughs) There's no option. I know we kind of teed in a little bit to the fact that you're going to be presenting at Shushmed about change management and driving change within an organization. Are there any little tidbits that people can anticipate when if they go see you? Yeah, well, you know, it's great because we have a couple of leaders um, from the Shishmed board and who are all working at you know large healthcare systems. And what I really want them to talk about is how do you kind of keep people focused, motivated, and going forward in times of crisis? Because that's a big challenge for, I think, anyone that's in the industry of marketing, communication, planning. You know, when things go crazy and you're in this constant crisis mode, how do you keep some eye on the future, some eye on the long-term goals? Because you do have to do that. And I think there's a key piece around, again, motivating your staff, retaining your staff as a leader. How do you do that? So that's the conversation. It'll be really like a good uh, panel discussion. I often think that people, again, in crisis mode, you go, you focus. But then when you come out of that, sometimes you lose some momentum. You know, you've been, you've been heads down for two weeks. You've been, you can't think about anything else but the crisis. Then when you come out of it, you've got some time. Like, how do you actually shift that and go back to your long-term goals or go back to your priorities? It can be really hard to do. So I think that that'll be a nice part of the conversation to say, how do we keep that momentum going? How do we kind of work to the long-term goals we want to do, uh, even though we get constantly distracted? And I think, you know, at least for the rest of this year, that's going to be an issue with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I strongly encourage anyone listening in to attend Shishman and come to your panel, Alan, because you always provide such great insights. Alan, you know, before we leave, I think some people might want to connect with you online. They should. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, so I'm really active on LinkedIn. So if you're if you're on LinkedIn, look me up, send me a connection invite. Would be happy to to meet other people. And also just through my website, alanshubridge.com. I I post a couple blog posts uh, every every couple weeks, and that's a good place to to find me as well. Well, you always provide such great insights, perspectives. I love following you online, reading your blog posts. It's great stuff. So thank you for continuing to be a big part of the industry and sharing your your ideas and thoughts. And I really appreciate the last couple of minutes that we had to spend to get your insights on the state of our industry today, Alan. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. And again, it's a it's a crazy time, but I think there's there's positive happening and and we can look forward to a, a good future. I think, you know, uh, uh, with, even with all the disruption and everything, this is a great industry to work in. And so I'm happy to, to touch base with you about it. Here, here. Definitely connect with Alan. So thanks again. You're welcome.
Special thanks to Alan for coming on the show. Uh, certainly appreciate his time and uh, willingness to come on and share some knowledge. All right, a couple of things before we wrap the show up. Again, the TPS report you can find over at touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is our website. You can go check out past episodes, uh, other shows that are on the network, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. But certainly sign up for the TPS report so we can uh, get you that email each week. So, all right recommendations. What do you got today? Reed, I'm going to recommend a new email subscription service that I signed up for that actually aggregates news based on your interests. It's a website called Refind, refind refind.com. And you go to it and you can sign up and basically you say, what are you interested in? And what it does is it curates articles, top seven articles, much like our TPS report. It curates top articles uh, based on your interests. And your interests can be very wide and diverse as you want. I happen to pick things around like measurement and user experience design and healthcare and other things like that. And it's interesting. And so then what it does is it curates a daily email for you. So let me share with you what today, just some topics or, or articles that it curated for me today. The first one is an article from BBC Future it says, do we need to have a better understanding of what progress means? And talks about what progress means from a business perspective. So again, tying into my business interest. Another one is handling consumer experience in an economic downturn. Kind of topical today's conversation. That's the second article. How to create a voice of customer program for your organization. Lastly, like another article about designing the perfect button for your website. So uh, these are just curated. I think they use artificial intelligence, machine learning to kind of automatically curate this. If you're interested in getting information, I would highly recommend go out to Refind dot com r-e-f-i-n-d.com and uh sign up and see see how it works and you know if it doesn't work for you you can always unsubscribe that's my recommendation there you go no that's good i like that i like to have to go check that out i will also recommend uh a newsletter just healthcare g-i-s-t just healthcare.com uh really interesting group you know they do a lot in the consulting space from you know strategy and and all that kind of stuff anyway they have what they call the Weekly Gist, which is a newsletter you can sign up for. You can go read it on their website as well. But they pull together, and it's in kind of a similar fashion each week. So it's like, hey, this is what happened this week in health. Just looking at the one from this week, uh, or actually from the 22nd, uh, they talk about Amazon's acquisition of, of One Medical. I know you and I covered and they have the gist. You know, it's kind of like a little summary of, of what it is and what it means. J.P. Morgan Chase's investment into uh, another company uh, insures uh, raise ACA plan premiums next year. And then they have this little section called Plus What We've Been Reading. And then they have a graphic of the week, uh, which is some stats and stuff like that right now. On this one about uh, some drug makers limiting uh, 304B contract pharmacy sales. Uh, and then the, anyway, it just kind of goes down in the news, on the road, etc. So it's a good kind of little summary of kind of what happened in the industry over the prior week. So it's mm-hmm. the weekly gist. That's awesome. I'm actually subscribing to it right now. As you and I both do, we, re- we subscribe to a lot of news, emails, and other things like that to keep current with the industry. Right. I love right. that. So, you know, and I always like oh, in the morning when I'm drinking my morning coffee, just flash through some of the articles. So I'm signing up right now. That's great. All right. Well, hey, thanks, everybody. We appreciate the support. Reach out. Let us know how we're doing. If there's a topic uh, we should cover, somebody we should have on the show, we'd love to hear that. Uh, we've gotten several great comments over the last week, even about topics we've talked about lately. So we'd love to love to keep that going, stuff that resonates with you all. So be sure to reach out. Love, love, love if you would uh, share this with a friend, a coworker. Uh, let them know about the show. That's still the number one way people find out about us. And uh, we certainly appreciate uh, that support as well. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.